everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Melissa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan and I also use she, her, hers pronouns. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing discourse, ooh la la, fat phobia, anti-blackness, and so much more. So we understand that these topics can be difficult and personal topics for us to discuss and for you all to listen to. So please take care of yourself as you need to while listening. Yes. And before we get into it, we want to give a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter. We would not be doing this without you. Period. And I just I just want to say our post on the Activist TV show uh, is doing really well on Instagram. It's generated a lot of discussion, which, you know, is what we're here for. So we're very pleased about that. I'm also a little shook at how unfortunately well-timed the last episode was. I mean, I jokingly said either we're psychic or capitalism is just that predictable, but we know that both of these things are likely true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if capitalists can't stop it, they'll control it. Per. Mm. <laughs> All right. Let's get <laughs> mm. in the episode. <laughs> I'm like, are you dabbing or like what is happening over there? Oh, okay. The eyebrow cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did it so quickly that it looked like you were like dab. Um, are we still doing that? Um, some of our younger listeners let us know because I have no idea. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Brendan, what's the word? Yes, the word for today is discourse. And this is the term that people will add into any title to make it sound more academic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of uses of discourse, of the word discourse in a multitude of ways. And I'm sure that I myself have been guilty of using it to mean the dominant lens people are using to look at a particular topic through or something like I that. Mean, I mean, I feel like that's not entirely wrong, though. Yeah, I know. But I still just kind of throw it in there just to sound smart. <laughs> like, I mean, really, I could just say, yeah, that's that's the lens people are looking at things through or like that's the narrative people are using or they're thinking about things with and you know, sometimes that just won't do and you want to use the word discourse. Um, mm. And so when you do want to use it, let's just make sure that we're all using it <laughs> correctly. <laughs> so we'll get a little bit more specific. So according to my Oxford Dictionary of Sociology, which is a reference I highly recommend if you're in grad school, um, you can also get the Dictionary of Critical Theory, both good resources when you're like, I don't want to sift through Wikipedia. You just go to the dictionary entry and they'll probably have it in there. Anyways. Ooh. Okay. So in this dictionary, discourse is the study of language, its structure, functions, and patterns in use. And so there's a whole linguistic and post-structuralist background that features Ferdinand de Saussure, but we're not going to we're not going to do that to ourselves. We're not going to do that to y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but what we will say is that in linguistics, they aim to understand the patterns that structure sentences, whereas in anthropology and sociology, we're thinking about the patterns of thought that structure whole texts. So that's how you kind of get this like linguistic, anthropological, sociological like mix um, mm. that draws on Saussure and Barthes and, you know, all of these other linguistic types. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not my wheelhouse, so I'm a... <laughs> Listen, it, we are cultural anthropologists. We have told y'all before that there are four subdisciplines of anthropology. One of them is linguistic anthropology. We do not specialize in it, but here we are attempting. Um, and so if you're wondering, like, what do texts have to do with culture and the study of culture? If you remember your Clifford Geertz, he wrote that, quote, the culture of a people is an ensemble of texts, themselves ensembles, which the anthropologist strains to read over the shoulders of those to whom they properly belong. End quote. Now, not to get, you know, <laughs> too off track, but what you said just, like, inspired me to really think about this. Like, that is actually what we do as anthropologists, right? We aim to read culture. And if, you know, y'all think of read and that emphasis, just like, you know, Kid Fury and Crystal, 
All right, so this idea of the culture as text and the fieldwork as reading metaphors were important in Clifford Goetz's time, which feels like a lifetime ago, but you know, like here we 50 are. years. <laughs> 50 years. Um, and it has its importance in its time, but also has its promise, promise, also has its problems and limitations, particularly when it comes to questions about who has the authority to read these texts, right? And who has the power to rewrite them through different forms of representation. Did you just say power and representation in the same sentence? Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess everyone knows what's coming. Fooky. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, so when we talk about discourse, particularly its use in anthropology, we have to talk about the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who I somewhat affectionately but mostly disrespectfully call <laughs> Fouki. Um <laughs> And he took up this concept of discourse and understood, he understood it as the language for talking about or representing a topic and demonstrated how it can both open up, but also constrain our thoughts, actions, and even what is possible for us to imagine. Yeah. So language structures our reality, y'all. And so the example that I like to think about is that in English, we have about five ways to classify snow. You know, flurries, light snow, packing snow, you know, the stuff that you use to make snowmen with. (laughs) Oh. But then in Austria, they have more because, you know, because of like their history of skiing. So, for example, you can have grippy snow, um, which we might call packing snow, but that's something different because like packing snow is, I think it's like knee breaker snow. It's not good for skiing. (laughs) Meanwhile. I grew up in the South, so. Snow is not a thing. I'm Canadian, so snow is definitely a thing. Um, I've skied in Austria. I'm bougie. Um, <laughs> it was cool. Um, that was back in my travel writing days. I did a, a what you would call it, like a sponsored trip. Any, anyhow. So then, of course, we have the persistent cliche that we can thank the wonderful Franz Boas for which is that the Inuit have 50 words for snow. I don't know if people have heard this. I've heard it repeated a lot. Oh, there are 50 words for snow. That's not exactly the case. Of course, mm-hmm. what it means is they have dozens of ways to describe snow. Okay, so that's my example to help you all understand how language structures our reality. Back to Foucault. In his text, The Archaeology of Knowledge, which was published in 1969, Foucault identified the structures that determine language use as historically produced, loosely structured combinations of concerns, concepts, themes, and types of statements, which he calls discursive formations. Hmm. And so to put it plainly, discourses are groups of statements, whether written or spoken, historical or contemporary, that provide the architecture for understanding and talking about a particular topic. And so in making and repeating these statements, we create knowledge about different things. And so these repetitions become discursive formations that then structure how we understand the world and create the conditions of possibility for how we engage and act in it. And so these kinds of these things are mutually constituting, right? So mm-hmm. the discourses produce the discursive formation, which then allow the, the discourses to propagate. I guess we can put it that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, another example that's a little less um, wintry, I guess, uh, would <laughs> be thinking about like conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists who create them right? as an example of discourse and action. So there was a recent article in Vice about a survivor of the Parkland school shooting whose father was convinced by Q Anon that it was all a hoax. Can, can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Like, yeah, surviving a shooting and your father thinking that it wasn't real. That it wasn't real? That's bizarre, but it happens, right? And so the survivor uh, named Bill, it said that his father, um, well, said this about his father. He said it started a couple months into the pandemic with whole anti-lockdown protests. Uh, His feelings were so strong that it turned into facts for him. So if he didn't like having to wear a mask, it wouldn't matter what doctors or scientists said. And anything that contradicted his feelings was wrong. 
So he turned to the internet to find like-minded people, which led him to QAnon. And there's an entire controversy now about QAnon and its connections to anti-disability rights, its connections to right-wing movements. Um, And so this is another example of like how this kind of discursive formation creates people's realities. Mm -hmm. And so the statements that were being repeated, which we named as discourse, right, came out of this discursive formation, which is the Q Anon conspiracies. And this in turn structures how Bill's father sees the world and takes action as a result, meaning completely, you know, gaslighting his son about it. Right. Right. I, I read about that and that is wild. And I think it really speaks to how susceptible we are to these different forms of programming, if you want to call it that, through language. Like, mm. I was just reading today in The Guardian about the growing use of influence government. So national and local governments, they use sensitive personal data, and then they create these specific campaigns that are aimed at altering our behavior. And of course, right now, they're like, oh, we're using it for good, you know? So you go to the grocery store or something, and you buy matches um, or lighters, and then you scan your prime code, because Whole Foods, you get a discount. Um, now all of a sudden you start getting ads on your Google home or on your Alexa, um, about like fire safety and things like that. So they're, they're trying Mm -hmm. to like, you know, kind of change or alter our behavior. And in a sense, it's like, okay, yeah, there's some good points, you know, there's something good to it, but then it can also be really dangerous. Right. And so I'm freaked out by the whole thing. I'm just like, I'm ready. I'm ready to get rid of, I'm just ready to live off the grid. (laughs) You and me both. Look, (laughs) you and me both. If I could, I would. (laughs) Mm, Exactly. But I think just to to wrap up this uh, definition, this, this, what's the word segment, um, I found the definition of discursivity in the essay we were reading that we're reading today for this episode. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. So discursivity is defined as, quote, those processes and practices through which statements are made, recorded, and legitimated through linguistic and other means of circulation. So simply, a statement is made, it's repeated or circulated, and that begins to structure our reality because we come to believe that that statement and the world from which it emerges are true. Mm. And so there, there is a lot of power, scary power. <laughs> And being able to harness that. Yes. So I guess that leads us to our next segment, which is what we are reading today. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? So we're reading Fat, Black, and Ugly, the Semiotic Production of Prodigious Femininities by Crystal A. Smalls. This essay was published in 2021 in Transforming Anthropology. Crystal A. Smalls is an assistant professor of anthropology and linguistics at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She earned her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and studies the semiosis, which means meaning through words, of race in young people's lives by conducting research in different locations of the Black diaspora. One of her projects in development examines uses of Black bodies in reaction memes and GIFs and of black body parts in internet-mediated images by non-black people and situates these recursive digital practices within a timeline of slavery and its afterlife following Saidia Hartman's retemporalization of the present and therefore within a history of corporeal theft. She's currently working on a monograph titled Telling Blackness, Young Liberians and the Semiotics of Contemporary Diaspora in an Anti-Black World. And so this essay that we read today, it was tough. It was very tough, but very worth it. And also her citational, citational, her citational practice is on point. Yes. (laughs) Chef's kiss. Mm. Um, Like everybody named Mama was cited in this. Uh, (laughs) um, Really excited to read this research article because... It's written by a linguistic anthropologist, and I think this is our first time reading one on the podcast, mm-hmm. I believe. I love her Twitter bio, where she describes herself as thick as cold grits, black on both sides, empath. And I just want to say, that. Dr. Smalls, <laughs> if you're ever listening to this, 
if you are from South Carolina, please holla. I I am as well. Um, <laughs> but it's important to note, right, the black on both sides. Um, if you've been keeping up with the academic mess as of late, right, it's necessary to say. Um, but <laughs> back to the to matter at hand. Right. So in this article, Smalls takes up the trinomial fat, black and ugly to discuss the ways that fatness and blackness are, quote, discursively constructed as social comorbidities for feminine people. And she examines some of the ways that this impacts their lived experience. So she argues that a semiotic collusion, which Alyssa explained what semiosis is earlier, but we'll get to what that means later between fatness and blackness leaves certain people out of the purview of, quote, legible and legitimate humanness and value. Now, y'all, this article is thick, pun intended, (laughs) right? So we won't touch on everything, but we will talk about a few important points. Right. So she begins with what she calls an autoethnographic meditation. So autoethnographic means an ethnography of the self, auto, self, ethnographic. I'm not getting into what ethnographic. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> We'd have to go through. That might be our what's the word another day. Um, mm. So yes. So she starts with an autoethnographic meditation on fat talk. Fat talk is the quote hypernormalized, self-deprecating way many of us talk about and to ourselves and others about bodies. And so she talks about the places and times in which she's participated in fat talk how she's devalued her own body in a voice that she knew was not a deity or a celestial being, right? She was like, there's no way that these kinds of words that are coming into my mind, even though I, Mm -hmm. you know, people often say that they seem kind of celestial or something like that, there's no way that they could be. So what she thinks, what she comes to the conclusion of is that, you know, this is an internalization of the messages that we've received from the world around us. And so because of this, Fat talk is imbued with racialized, colorist, and gendered meanings that often impact dark-skinned, fat Black women the most. And so she points to various sources of these external messages. Song lyrics. For her, she talks about the sex scenes in the TV show Scandal, which even I can think about. <laughs> you know, I, I've never seen like, I, I knew exactly. I knew exactly what she was talking about because... Fitz be lifting Olivia up and flinging her around. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I want someone. Never mind. <laughs> you know, I know what she was getting at. If that's what you're into, honey, I I like to stay yeah. on the group. I like to stay rooted, <laughs> grounded. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so yes, so those, the. The, quote, the cracks of wits that turned her great-great-grandmother's bodies into flesh, everyday conversations about health and wellness, doctor's office visits, encounters with the police, and almost anything ever said about women's bodies. So she, along with these sources, participate in the discourses that render her fat, black, and ugly, and excessive flesh. Right. So we've talked about flesh before in episode two of season one, entitled Ain't I a Woman, where we discussed Hortense Spiller's essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. So we're not going to do a deep dive in this episode. Listen to that if you want to learn more about flesh. Um, But Smalls uses this idea or this concept of black flesh uh, to expand to thinking about fatness. And so she says, right, black flesh, when it's fattened up, has the capacity to hold all meanings and ways of being. So blackness and femininity in all its forms, so whether it be short, tall, light-skinned, dark-skinned, skinny, fat, somewhere in the middle, right, produces an everyday praxis where black women and girls can both be magical and ordinary. And so... To unpack this, Smalls uses a Rosenblige discourse analysis of fat, black, and ugly to determine how these different meanings and ways of being actually manifest in our world. Rosenblige discourse analysis is an eclectic analysis that draws from multiple disciplines to examine how discourse reflects and makes the ways bodies are experienced and treated in this world. So the idiom fat, black, and ugly signals how blackness, fatness, and ugliness determines what kind of value a person has. 
Rassemblage Discourse Analysis was developed by Gina Athena Ulysse, a Haitian-American anthropologist, artist, and post-Zora interventionist. There may have been a problematic ethnography about Haiti or two mm-hmm. by Zora Neale Hurston. So anyways, this decolonial approach stems from Caribbean politics and performativity that urges researchers to take up a transdisciplinary approach to their research, writing, and reporting back to their communities. In this article, Smalls relies on evidence that is not just field notes and participant observation. She also brings together black studies, disability studies, gender studies, fat studies, and semiotics to develop her theory of prodigious femininities. And I think with prodigious, she's kind of working with the polysemy of that word, right? Mm -hmm. So prodigious, it can mean like large, um, large, huge, excessive, but it can also mean like abnormal. So I think she's kind Mm -hmm. of playing with, with that whole idea. And so she analyzes different scales of fat talk from urban dictionary definitions to Lizzo's Instagram posts to literature and then examines how they not only create discursive violence for those marked as fat, black, and ugly, but also predispose them to physical violence, aggression, and neglect. Right. So, and also um, one of the meanings of prodigious is monstrous, which I think also kind of folds into what she's developing in this this essay. But I'm going to Jump back to the semiotic collusion of fatness and blackness that I mentioned earlier. And as Alyssa said earlier, right, semiotics is the study of meaning. And so we already know some meanings for blackness, right? And one of them that we've talked about in the podcast is how blackness can predispose black and blackened people to gratuitous violence. And if you want to hear more about that, check out our episode on Afro-pessimism. Um, but fatness... And its meanings compounds that violence. So the normative discourse around fatness is that fatness means one is lazy, less desirable, unlovable, unhealthy. And I'm putting quotation marks around that. And because of these things, right, you deserve abuse, death and violence. And so we see the deadly semiotic collusion of these discourses in the aftermath of the police killings of Michael Brown, Eric Gardner and Micaiah Bryant, to name a few. Right. In all of these cases, their deaths were considered justifiable in different communities for different reasons. Michael Brown's fatness took him out of the realm of the human young man. Right. And made him a monster. The police blamed Eric Eric Gardner's fatness to be the source of his last words, which were I can't breathe. Right. And in Micaiah Bryant's case, right, her fatness transformed her from a child in self-defense to a combative, deadly adult. But what is different, and that's the difference that I'll mark, right, um, about the discourses surrounding Michael Brown and Eric Gardner is that those were the police justifications for their killings, right? That fat phobic discourse came mostly and mainly from the police and those communities that were aligned with the police. The mm. fat phobic discourse about Micaiah came from the police and came from other black people, right? Namely, uh, black men. Right? I saw a lot of black mm-hmm. men justify her killing um, through fat phobia. So all of this to say, right, there is a difference. There is a gender difference that Smalls points to in this article, right? Being fat, black, ugly, and feminine exposes one to a particular discursive violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this essay really got me thinking about how the fat black body can contain or does contain these multiple meanings and in different discursive spaces, right? So she Mm -hmm. writes that, quote, such being takes us to and beyond the far reaches of indestructibility and moribundity, incivility Mm -hmm. and grace, disgustingness and succulence, sexualities from hyper to a, the sacred and profane, beastliness and utter humanness, and on and on. So fatness means unwellness, But it's also the reason that Micaiah Bryant and Eric Garner, as examples, are unable to be victims. So Mm -hmm. they're superhuman, but also always already approaching death due to their size. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, then there is the the hypersexual body that's, you know, 
characterized by the steatopygia, which is what she talks about, which is some of the literature that she refers to, which means excessively large buttocks and is supposed to be basically how like koi, koi women were described, such as um, Sarah Bartman. Mm. So there's that aspect, which is characterized by largeness, right? And then there's the asexual body, like the mammy archetype, you know, which we discuss also in our second episode in I, a Woman. She talks about then this subversion, right, with respect to the fat black woman who would normally be mammified. Um, mm. And so the, the subversion is in inviting a sexual gaze, right? So, and I think that's one of the things that gets people so riled up about women like Lizzo and other proudly BBBWs, as she writes about in the essay, right? You know, reclaiming their bodies. They're like, oh, but you're meant to be this way. You're fat. And like, this was, a, this was meant to be like a redemptive form of, of life and living for you. And you're rejecting that and sexualizing it. And that's weird. Right. Like, why don't you want to be included in the way that we want to include you? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> I wonder, right? And that's even more disruptive or even prodigious because the mammy role was meant to be a safe role, right? It's it's basically how society would like to value a Black woman, right? And you could be absolved by being caring and comforting and serving white people and their children. And so Smalls writes transformed into both an object of loathing and a deeply desired instrument of comfort and healing, the abundantly fleshy mammy may still serve as a site of potential redemption for black, for fat black women. That is, as a viable means to attaining value per dominant society. So that's part of the reason why this body positivity movement does not necessarily have the same liberatory potential for black women as it does as whites, right? Because, okay, yeah, value us as fat, but in what way, right? As only when we're taking care of you. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Smalls talks about how the racialized difference between fat and ugly and fat, black and ugly, and how it creates ideal citizens. Part of the model minority myth, for, for example, is the image it conjures of the thin, health-conscious East Asian person as opposed to the fat, unhealthy, Black, Indigenous, or Latinx person. So the model minority can then be written as the ideal foreigner, while the other is treated as a burden on society because of the deeply rooted belief that fatness is a result of, quote, the wrong, wrong choices. Mm-hmm. So Smalls unpacks how these racialized differences impact Black and non-Black fat feminine people differently. In this current moment, when the body positivity movement may benefit fat white women, fat Black women still experience anti-Black violence for simply living. She argues that this is because fat Black feminine people efficiently embody deviance from white Western femininity. Right. Like, if you want to point to who is not feminine in the most efficient way, right? Um, In some ways, fat black women encapsulate that. Mm -hmm. And she she deepens this by referring to Sabrina String's conceptualization of the heavy black feminine body as social dead weight, which shows that black fat feminine people are seen as burdens to social systems due to their fatness and lifeless due to their blackness. So decolonizing our relationship to whiteness, which we talk about all the time on this show and outside of this, right, actually necessitates that we reestablish, I was about to say healthy, but I'm I'm trying to stay away from that word, (laughs) reestablish our relationship to fatness and blackness. And for Smalls, living as a fat, black, feminine person is always already an act of political and ontological subversion, right, disrupting what we assume makes up desirability and humanness. And so we must remember that every time we denigrate ourselves for having fat or being fat, right, we are shoring up these anti-Black, fat-phobic conceptualizations of who is deserving of life and love. And so Smalls encourages us to take up fat, Black, fugitive femininities that do not aim to be incorporated into standards of beauty, but that thrive outside of them. And in them, We take up ways of becoming that facilitate new, othered, and recovered modes of being. 
So living in our fatness and our blackness allows us to usher in new worlds today. And with that, I guess we could get into our next segment, which is what? What? What in the world? What in the world is going on? Be so many things to discuss. So many um. things. Uh, so <laughs> first for me um, is the Brandy Melville scandal. Mm-hmm. If y'all are like, what is that? Because honestly, I didn't know because I have way <coughs> aged out of this clothing brand. <laughs> really aged out of it. Um, basically, last week, executives at the teen fashion brand Brandy Melville were exposed for sharing Hitler memes and advocating misogyny and anti-black racism. It's always it's always Hitler that gets these people, you know. I don't know. Y'all are on another level. But okay. So an investigative journalist for Business Insider revealed that the CEO does not allow black or fat girls to work in their stores. And so the CEO, Stephen Marsan, he created a workplace where only pretty and thin white girls were allowed to work in, in every store, and this was globally. So the former senior vice president, Luke, Luca Rotondo, said she was told by Marsan to only hire girls who fit his specifications. Quote, if she was black, if she was fat, he didn't want them in the store, end quote. Now you may ask, how did the CEO of a company with hundreds of stores enforce these rules. Well, well, every girl who applied for a job at the store had to take a full body photo while at the interview. And then that photo was sent to a group chat of the male executives. Hmm. Then, not to mention, they they would have to send pictures every shift if they did get hired. And if they started gaining weight, they would get fired. Things like that. Um, anyways, they would respond not only about whether the person whose photo they were sent could be hired, um, but it would also dictate the amount of pay that they would receive. So they would get paid more if they were more attractive to the executives. And so there were some reports of hiring managers in order to get around this. They would use Facetune to edit the pictures because they were like, I'm not, they didn't want to engage in this, but in a way they were still engaging in it. Um, additionally, there were reports that they would hire black and brown girls during busy periods, like around Christmas and things like that. And then they would fire them right after. And okay. this was not just in the U S okay. Also, I should say, I think it's an Italian company. Mm. So this was not just in the U S the owner of several Canadian stores is suing the company because he was fired for refusing to discriminate. And so in the lawsuit, he alleges that Brandy Melville executives closed a store in uh, one of his Canadian stores, closed it because the customers were ghetto, and that a manager at another store was too, quote, short and fat to work at Brandy Melville. All right. So just so y'all know, uh, for any of the Canadians, Torontonians who are listening, it was at Square One. (laughs) It was at Square One in Mississauga, and they were like, nah, those people are too brown and too ghetto. Um, so all of this to say, why, why were people even still working there? Well, it was a status symbol. So a lot of girls who are models now and influencers, they actually got their start working at Brandy Melville. The, the way that my face is broken, um, Mm. And y'all, please don't mistake my my laughter for me actually Finding enjoying this, this or like yeah. the thing that I find I'm find the ridiculousness of it amusing. Like like the levels as you kept peeling back. Like not only do I have to take a full body picture, I have to send the picture to a group of men who then decide either with a Hitler meme or something else that. I deserve to work. You know, that's ridiculous. But it's interesting, too. And we we talked about it a little bit, and we'll unpack it more here, right? This black or fat and how a lot of times to be black is to be always already fat. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll talk about that 
And I think, I, and you know, one of one of the other things um, that I didn't elaborate in my description because it was already long. <laughs> there are so <laughs> many other elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they did hire uh, black girls or black and brown girls um, during those busy periods, they would fire the dark skinned ones and the fat ones. They would keep the mixed race ones, the mixed race women or girls, I should say, because a lot of them were under 18, um, you know, working like their high school, after school jobs. Um, So they would keep mixed race ones. So color comes into this, colorism comes into this and like the whole idea of exoticism would come into it. They wouldn't really hire East Asian girls unless they had a very particular look. Like it was just, it was just a whole, a whole thing. They had them trying on clothes in front of executives, changing in front of them, topless, like all of these kinds of things. It was just like abuse to the maximum. Yeah, and for, uh, gosh, people are disgusting. And this is not the first or second time, and it probably won't be the last as long as this company exists, um, that it will come under fire. Last year, TikTok user Callie Jean XO shared a video about her experience working at Brandy Melville for three months when she was 17. But then people were like, why are you surprised? Haven't you heard? And on Twitter, at Swagmaster Jenny wrote, quote, people being surprised that Brandy Melville is problematic. Uh-huh. What's the fact that they only sell extra small and small clothes not already an indicator? Like, how did that sit right with y'all? And... I mean, that is an indicator, y'all. If you shop somewhere and they don't have clothes for, quote, plus size people or the plus size is size like eight, ten, that is an indicator that it is a problematic place to shop. <laughs> for sure. I mean, that's, that just goes to how much fat phobia can and is institutionalized, can be mm-hmm. and is institutionalized, right? So that's just one way of of finding that out. You might be like, oh, well, they just don't cater to these kinds of bodies. But no, that's there are people up at the top of those companies making those kinds of decisions. Right. And using mm-hmm. BS excuses like it, the fabric costs more. So. Mm-hmm. Mm. We also wanted to discuss um, one of the major systems and institutions that Smalls talks about in the article is a place where she hears fat talk and engages in fat talk, and that is at the doctor's office and in the medical system. So, yeah, where do there you want to start with that? There's so I, much to say. <laughs> there's there's so much. I mean, one of one of the things I want to do is clear up what fat phobia means. Mm-hmm. At some point during this conversation, I would like for us to also talk about why telling people that they're fat, that they're overweight, that they need to lose weight is not a form of caring about their health. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to talk about that. Um, In terms of fat phobia, so people often hear that suffix phobia appendage to things and they're like, "I'm I'm not scared of fat people. I'm not scared of gay people. Okay, that's that's not that's not what it means. What that means. <laughs> <laughs> so the next time you're telling your your homophobic uncle um, that he's being homophobic and he's like, I'm not scared of gay people. Y'all need to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what it means. So phobia is a suffix. It can mean fear or hatred, mm. fear and or hatred, really. And so what they have in common is that they come out of some kind of irrational or unreasonable belief or kind of a psychic trauma, perhaps, when it comes mm-hmm. to fear, right? And so fear itself can manifest in dread. It can manifest in hatred. So I hate walking on bridges because I am extremely scared of heights. Well, really, I'm actually afraid of plummeting to my death. <laughs> but... That's, you know, that's between me and my therapist. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That was Aquarius worst case scenario thinking. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess. I guess it is. That's that's what it is, right? So I hate bridges because I'm afraid of heights, right? So 
when it comes to social phobias, which is what I'm just calling like homophobia, Islamophobia, fat phobia, there most likely is some unconscious fear associated with your prejudice. But what we're talking about with the phobias in this case is hatred, okay? Mm. And whatever that fear that underlies your prejudice is, that can also be between you and your therapist. <laughs> and please keep it between you and your therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, maybe one of those unconscious fears, which um, I, I talk about a little later, might be connected to desirability. Mm. in some ways right either desiring or being desired and sabrina strings unpacks connections to fear and fat phobia right with her book is actually entitled fearing the black body and so she talks about fat phobia's deep connections to anti-blackness and some would argue that to be anti-fat is to be anti-black because of how in being black you are always already rendered excess and so we have anthropology and medicine to thank for that. Right? Anthropology constituted what it meant to be human and constructed black people as always outside of that, right? Measuring our skulls. Our skulls were always too big. Our brains were always too small. Our bone density was always too much, right? We were always already too much. And so white femininity uh, was supposed explicitly constructed to be the opposite of black femininity. So you have these slender features, these slender bodies that constitute what it means to be a real woman while those with larger bodies with larger bodies were closer to animals and thus could be treated as breeders. Mm. Right? But we're going to shift this to the medical industrial complex, right? So there was a study that was done at Texas Medical Center of Houston with 122 physicians. And the doctors reported that seeing patients was a greater waste of their time, the heavier the patients were. Right? Physicians would like their jobs less if they worked with patients that increased in size, right? And that heavier patients were viewed to be more annoying, which fascinating um and that physicians felt less patience the heavier the patient was just wow like how wow Girl. i mean <laughs> for, for there to be an inverse correlation between how happy you are at your job and the size of the patients that you treat is so strange <laughs> That's least. just crazy. That's just crazy. And then, <laughs> then you have these last two that the that heavy patients are annoying and they feel less patience. I'm like, you know, I have seen that. Mm. I have seen my 600 pound life on TLC, and the way that that doctor, the way he treats those patients, is hella disrespectful. Some of the things that he says, I'm just like. Are you okay? <laughs> Why are no. you treating these people? Like he has, I mean, there's a sense in that he's like, I'm saving them and I'm helping them. But then like, there's also a kind of lack of compassion with him. Um, that kind of, that just, I don't know, for some people they find it entertaining, but it, I don't know, it's cringy. But in any case, you know, what you can see in that show and through that study that was done is that people with larger bodies, they're always facing constant judgment and discrimination and blame. And I think blame mm -hmm. is the big one here. It's like, if you're overweight, it's your fault and you need to do something about it. And I know that I have had that experience in my life. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. I gained 50 pounds when I was in... Uh, university and every time I would go to the doctor the doctor would be like you just need to lose weight because the weight apparently increases the hormones which makes it worse and I'm like yeah but obviously I'm in this the middle right. of this like vicious cycle and it's really hard and I am trying and it's not helping and I had to go see a different endocrinologist who finally put me on some medication and I was able to lose the weight but the whole time, the doc, every time I would go, every three months or whatever for a checkup, it was like, you need to just, just lose the weight. Just lose weight. Just lose weight. And so that kind of attitude can have devastating consequences. 
in, in like a variety of areas in someone's life, but especially when it comes to their health. Like I didn't want to, I didn't even want to go. I didn't want to go right. back to the doctor. I was like, you're not helping me. Right. And, um, I mean, we see it on Twitter, TikTok, people, fat people sharing their experiences at the doctor and not being able mm-hmm. to be treated because the doctor is so focused on, you know, them losing weight. And I mean, I think I might've told you about going to a doctor at our university and, mm-hmm being told that something was wrong with me, even though all my tests came back negative. And it, and the doctor and I are the same size. You know, we both wear a size 12 or, or whatever, you know. And I'm looking at her like, we look we look similar. But for some reason, her fixation on my BMI mm-hmm. um, had me going up to the lab three times over the course of two weeks to the point where the lab technician who kept drawing my blood was like, are you okay? Like, are you sick? You look fine. And I was like, I don't know. The doctor keeps making me come up here. And then eventually, after wasting my time, <laughs> she was just like, oh, um, you're okay. And then sent me on my way as if hmm. she didn't drag me through the ringer um, of things. And I think, speaking of BMI, right, like, we need to talk about how the metrics that doctors use to determine obesity, quote unquote, right, are di- actually dictated by pharmaceutical companies, right? Because we all know capitalism hmm. underlines and underscores most of these things that we're talking about today. And in undergrad, actually, in, my, in a medical anthropology course, I read this book called Drugs for Life by Joseph Dumit. And if I'm mispronouncing that, forgive me. Um, <laughs> and... This book talks about how BMI is socially constructed. And so I don't know if you all pay attention to medical charts or things like that. Maybe some of you who are in the medical field do. But actually, a few years ago, pharmaceutical companies started rolling out this kind of, um, quote, studies and information about pre being pre-diabetic, which hmm. if you really think about it, like, what does that mean? Right. Either you have diabetes or you don't. So what does it mean to be pre-diabetic technically if you don't have diabetes you're already pre-diabetic but anyway um (laughs) and they wanted to increase the number of people who were on medication for pre-diabetes and one of the risk factors for diabetes is obesity so in order to increase the number of people who could be prescribed that medication by doctors right they actually shifted the scales of the bmi measurements so the underweight normal and overweight over to the left so that more people would be obese, right? Mm. And if BMI is an objective measure of how healthy you are, and we all know that's not, um, why would it need to shift? And how could right? it shift? How? How, how could it change shift? that? Especially since as human beings, we've actually gotten heavier and more muscular and larger over time. Why would it shift to the left? Mm. Right? So BMI is not an indicator of health, right? It does not take into account your bone density, your body fat percentage, how much you eat or drink water, which is an indication of how healthy you may or may not be, right? All it takes into account is your weight and your height. And it doesn't tell you any really useful health information. Yeah. And And I think one of the things that we know is that there are a lot of differences in bone density among mm-hmm. people. I mean, <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to go. I'm, I'm done. I'm done on this one, <laughs> on the topic of BMI, but uh, I have a lot of, a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. I have, yes. I honestly, <laughs> from childhood, going to the pediatrician, just mm. trauma. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, anyways, I think, I think what we're getting to here is that fat phobia just has dire consequences especially especially when it comes to health right yes absolutely um and I would say like thinking about my own childhood I was a child who struggled with disordered eating because I felt pressured by my mother and by the church um that I was in right to look a certain way Uh, and I now understand that the, this pressure was a projection right, of their own anxieties about their own undesirability as fat black people mm-hmm. onto me as a black girl. And because I was normal for my childhood and early adulthood. So on the BMI index, I was 
always kind of in the middle uh, up until towards the end of college. Uh, doctors, like my pediatrician, did not even consider that I might be experiencing mental health issues or the digestive issues that I was experiencing was due to to my disordered eating that was due to my own internalized fat phobia. And while I'm still working through my feelings about my body um, and accepting myself, right? I have definitely embraced myself more now than I've ever before. And I'm at my heaviest. So getting back to what you were saying earlier about commenting on people's weight and like as an indication of their health, right? It's not, right? I feel better about my body and feel better in my head now than I did when I was like a normal average size and all these air quotes around that, like mm-hmm. black girl. Yeah, I feel like for so many of us, the the process of getting to loving and caring for our bodies mm-hmm. is is a journey. Like the mm-hmm. fact that you have to go through a process and a journey to just accept something that is normal, like that is normal for you is what I mean and not normal for society is so indicative of how much like how much of a problem this <laughs> this it's, world it's, it's, this like white capitalist like white supremacy capitalist patriarchal society has affected everybody but especially us and us. folks like us right and like you know it's coming for it comes for white women too you know i mean mm-hmm. to drag y'all into this like <laughs> <laughs> to drag y'all into this i was just as we were reading the article, I was thinking about um, my archival dig that I did for my dissertation and, and seeing some of the ads that they had in popular newspapers for white women where it was like basically telling them to take some drug. I don't know what it is, but basically this drug that makes your butt flat. And it's mm. like, you don't want to look like your housekeeper. You don't want to look like the help. That's that what they what say. The like. Said? Yeah, you know, you know, you want your husband to remain attracted to you and you don't want to look like the help. So keep your butt flat with, I don't know, maybe it was cocaine. I don't know what they were telling women to take <laughs> these um, housewives to take. But right, like fat phobia, which is always, in my opinion, connected to anti-blackness, is what caused Demi Lovato to come forward about her cocaine addiction and her disordered eating like this mm-hmm. damages white women too, while also serving to like help uphold them in a standard of beauty as a standard of beauty. So I think, like as we're talking about our experiences as black women, right? It's it's not to say that like this should, it just harms us, right? It harms everybody, but it impacts us the most, right? And then for fat, dark skinned black women, like it affects them the most yeah i mean and then if we bring that back to kind of like what's going on in in the medical industry i think we Mm -hmm. really saw the way that all of this operated during COVID 19 right Mm -hmm. so the cdc told us that people with underlying conditions like diabetes and obesity you're at a high risk of um, complications to COVID 19 and so then in saying that and this is where we talk about discourses, right? Discourse and discursive formation. How did those discourses then create a discursive formation that then encouraged different discourses, right? Mm-hmm. I, that probably just confused people, but what I'm saying is <laughs> how, did, <laughs> how did that statement that fatness put you at a high risk, which is the discourse, create a structure for people to be like, oh, we don't need to treat these people um, and care for them as much as we would people who are thin. So basically right. it biased, it created this bias in the treatment of larger people for COVID-19 when they went to the hospital, right? So how much of that risk was increased because doctors don't offer the same level of care to fat patients? Mm-hmm. And then when fat people were dying of COVID-19, that reinforced the whole idea that they were at high risk, right? Mm -hmm. So all of it, it basically just becomes like this vicious cycle. And I just don't, it just doesn't make sense that sick people, 
regardless of size, like sick people are considered less valuable by the medical establishment. Like that doesn't even make any sense. I mean, if your whole medical establishment is driven towards the maintenance of life versus like, you know, increasing life or increasing the quality of life, but just the maintenance of it so that people can stop being sick to go to work to keep this little Mm. economy that we got (laughs) going, then it only makes sense in that level. And like what you're saying about the bias against fat people. And so people, I mean, what we talked about earlier, right? There's this discourse around fatness that says, oh, it's a choice. You're choosing to have Mm -hmm. a less quality of life versus looking at the structure in society that say people who are above, well, let me talk about women. Women, feminine people who are above a size four, right? Which is what models have, I think what you're even a big model if you're a size four, right? Like don't deserve to have the same quality of life as someone who's a zero or is, a you know, maintaining a certain type of body type. Mm -hmm. Like we live in a society that excludes most people from the people who deserve to have good lives. Right. That's wild. And like, we could also talk about like literally how plan B doesn't work for people who are over 160 pounds. Like if I ever wanted to get spicy with my life and, you know, play (laughs) gay and go against everything in my soul. Date um, cis men again. <laughs> you know, um, date cis men again. I wouldn't even be able to use plan B to correct my I, mistakes. You know what? I I was shook about that as well. Like the average woman in America weighs 168 pounds. And so even at my, at, like among my lowest weights, plan B would not even be as effective for me. And mind you, I mean, I'm tall. I was I was an athlete back in the day, but it's like, does that does does that count? Like, how exactly does this work? Mm-mm. Only and, height and, and weight. So it's literally if it's literally based on height and weight, like I'm I'm finished. I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't understand. Like I know that you know the recent decision in Texas that has had us discussing reproductive rights, mm-hmm. but I think. You know, one of the things that we haven't been talking about is the way are like the other ways that access to birth control is curtailed, um, particularly in ways that discriminate against certain body types. Like there are certain there are certain methods that you cannot use. There are certain solutions that you cannot have as a person who may be larger than, you know, a size two, which is which is crazy. It's yeah, it's wild. And. I think part of it, if I want to be in my psychology bag that I step in every once in a while, like, <laughs> is due to the assumption that, like, fat people aren't desirable. So back to that kind of, like, mm. fear around desirability and that they themselves have no desire to live full, complete lives because it's like, if you did, you would look differently or you would make different choices, right? And you also can't... Um, if you have a BMI above a certain number, you cannot donate your eggs for money, mm. which I was a few years ago, you know, I was like, oh, let me see what this is given. I keep getting all these Instagram ads. Let you know me what? See. <laughs> I've and considered I thought, it too. <laughs> look, I, I thought I would sign up. So I fill out the little questionnaire. I already figured it was a slim shot because I am a darker skinned black woman. But I was shocked to find out that in addition to that, honey, I weigh too much. So that's what the results came back. Um, and I guess to be facetious about it, right? I guess somebody told facility scientists, right, that being overweight is genetic. Mm. Hmm. Is it that or is it that the fertility? Because, you know, you have to take all of these like shots and stuff. And again, I mean, again, it comes down to certain treatments, drugs, all of these things not being made for people who are not of a particular size. So mm-hmm. I think, so it might be the genetics thing, but also might be because like the treatment that you would have to take would would 
make you, you would be higher risk, quote unquote, right? So, who knows? That's a possibility too. I mean, I've tried to sign up for like drug studies and stuff. <laughs> like, you know, where they pay you like $1,500 to take some medication or whatever. I've tried to do it and they're like, ah, nah. <laughs> Not for you. Yeah. You're too high risk and we don't know what the side effects will be. Well, damn. Anyways, that's okay. At least I won't end up with like, you know, a third <laughs> eye or something decalcifying my pineal gland. <laughs> I like it well calcified. Um, so as a, as a last point on this um on this topic, someone did ask us on Instagram about, you know, your weight limiting access to health insurance. Mm. Um, to be clear, it is illegal. It is illegal to deny someone health benefits due to obesity or their weight. Um, if they, if you were talking about life insurance, then like you might be hit with higher premiums because of your life expectancy. We're not going to get into that, but we really do want to hit drive home that you, your weight cannot stop you from getting health insurance, from being mm -hmm. covered by your insurer, um, by your company insurer, any kind of health benefits. Nah. Um, if you have experienced weight bias in healthcare or in other contexts, you can complete the weight bias reporting form, which was created by the Obesity Action Coalition. And so a committee reads and responds to the submissions where appropriate and either calls out the bias, starts dialogues, or offers education. So we will put a link to that in the description box. Um, and yeah. yeah. Journey on, folks, with us. Yeah, there's already enough barriers um, to health. Mm -hmm. And um, the last thing that we wanted to talk about today was to kind of bring this back into this more popular culture. And you all may have encountered... Um, either on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Camiel, Kevin Samuels, I was about to put his first and last name together, um, <laughs> videos and Instagram posts. Mm. There is a discourse right, that surrounds Lizzo and her choosing to live her life, whether she chooses to have mustard with her watermelon, whether she chooses to drink <laughs> tea, whether she chooses to work out, whether she chooses to be surrounded by fine men on her birthday and be sprayed with a water hose, which... Girl, you hey, out here living your best hey, life. You know? hey. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Um, and it seems that it doesn't matter what she does or doesn't do, right? People will always have something to say. And y'all truly do not want to see fat black women love themselves and be loved, right? Without caveat, mm. which mm. is disgusting. Um and so Kimberly Foster on Instagram made a reel where she talked about how y'all won't let Lizzo or any other fat black woman live because y'all think that they don't deserve life or happiness. But I need y'all to make it make sense to me. Like, mm -hmm. make it make sense to me. Y'all praise the already thin Ari Lennox for losing weight, which that was not slick. We all knew what was mm -hmm. going on with that. All right, I'll never forget how I saw niggas claim that Megan Thee Stallion was one dessert away from being desirable when she first came out. And now mm. she's on this, quote, health journey, which, again, make it make sense, right? All of us have fat, black, feminine people. Oh, oh another person. Uh, Jasmine Sullivan now getting all this recognition because she's thinner now. Like, mm -hmm. I got my eyes on y'all. I know what's up. I know what's up. Mm -hmm. Right? And, like, all of us have fat, black, feminine people in our lives who make life worth living. Right? And yet our internalized white supremacy and anti-black fat phobia tells us and them that they don't deserve it. And it's got to stop. Right. It was anti-black fat phobia that helped the officer pull the trigger on Micaiah Bryant. And it helped y'all justify her murder. So the solution is not how do we make black feminine people more conventionally attractive. Right. We don't need more exercise programs that reinforce the unworthiness of fat black bodies and people. Right? We need to eradicate these systems, this discourse, this fat talk, this thinking within and outside of us that tells us that we are unworthy as we are. Mm. Like, I just think we got to get rid of it all. Like, we can't keep living like this, y'all. We can't keep living like this and thinking we're going to get free. Like, 
we're not. <laughs> well, exactly. If your vision for revolution, liberation, and the world otherwise doesn't include fat people in a way that treats them as worthy and loved, it ain't truly liberatory. Period. You ain't doing nothing. You're not doing nothing. You're doing same old, same old, honey. Mm-hmm. And we done with that. Well, that's our episode for today. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Times and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Yes, and we appreciate all of your support. Thank you so much. If you liked this episode, please share it. We would love to hear about what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or donate, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. You know what? Just Google Zora's Daughters because we have got the brand name on lock. All right. Period. (laughs) And last but not least, please remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye.